verses 14 to 18. In my opinion, this is actually one of the greatest uh, passages in the entire New Testament. And you'll see why, hopefully, in just a moment. John chapter 1, verse 14 to 18. John the writer tells us, he says, And the word, so if you've been following along with us over the past couple weeks, you, you already know we've uh, talked a little bit about who the word is and what the word is and whatnot. We're gonna, today we're going to begin to discover really ultimately the identity. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, or the Torah was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is of the Father's side, for he has made him known. And this is the word of the Lord. I want to pray, and we'll get to work. So Jesus, we just lay our hearts uh, raw, bare, uh, transparent before you. We, God, just give you this time to do what you alone can do with us, in us, through us, and beyond us. So have your way uh, in this space this morning. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all grab a seat. All right, so what we've been, oh, you guys don't have the Bible, go ahead, raise your hand. Um, we're going to be just, again, doing what we've been doing the past few weeks, is just taking the passage and reading through it bit by bit, making some comments, pausing, reflecting, thinking uh, upon this, this massive uh, prologue that John, the writer, one of the followers of Jesus, is telling us. He's taking us on a journey, uh, unpacking for us really the story, a narrative of the life of Jesus, and so... What we discovered today, I, I think, has the power to radically, radically, hopefully, take hearts that are filled with cynicism, hearts that are raw and hurting and pained and filled with chaos or prone to believe stories that are just dead ends at some point, to basically reshape the sum total of our lives to become people that are part of this process of new creation that God is really all about. So I'm going to jump right in, verse 14, we'll uh, make some comments, and we'll just con continue to make our way through. So verse 14, again, he reiterates, and he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or some of your Bible translations might say tabernacled among us, and I want to unpack this a little bit, and we'll take a look at this. Uh, first of all, just the idea of the word. Again, we have already, up to this point, seen some very important data about who and what the word is. So uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, it describes, in the beginning was the word. So what we know so far about whatever this word is, uh, this word was in the beginning with God. This word was with God. And then we're also told that this word was God. And he was creating all things. And he was before creation. So whoever this word is up until this point, uh, it's, 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 there's an unpeeling of the mystery for us. So that by the time we get to this point right now, we're beginning to like, it's beginning to take more shape. So whatever this word is, again, we pointed out several weeks ago, this would not be a far abstract, too far off idea for uh, Jews or even Greeks to kind of absorb or think about. Um, because throughout scripture, it describes God's word as God says, I sent out my word and it went to go heal them. Or I sent out my word and it crushed the enemies of the people of Israel. Whatever. So God's word has this agency to bring forth healing, bring about order. Um, and again, this is all within the Old Testament paradigm long before jesus ever even came out of the you know onto the planet you know walked 
on the Sea of Galilee or created loaves and fishes all before Jesus did all that. They already had this idea that this whatever God's word does something. God's word accomplishes something. Now, again, that's very distinct from you and I. Like our words may be able to do something. Our words might be able to go forth and make someone mad. Our words might be able to go forth and, and make demands or commands. But we don't have, by just our words alone, any ability to really create something or make something just with words alone. It comes with you know, ingenuity and work and creativity and, and, and grit and so on and so forth. But with God, God's word goes forth and accomplishes something. Now, John's taking us into the story, and he's telling us that this word actually becomes flesh. This is, this is fascinating. Again, the, the language that John uses here, obviously, he writes in Greek. There's three Greek words that could, could have been used to describe what this word became. The first word is the word anthros. Uh, we just get the word, you know, human from. You can think of the word anthropology, the study of, of humanity. Another word he could have used is the word soma, which literally is the word for body, like our actual body or the body of something, body of flesh or whatever. And then the third word that he actually uses here is the word sarks. It's kind of a crude word. It's just described like physical flesh pot, right? Just this physicality of humanity. So whoever this word is, this word takes upon flesh. The invulnerable God takes upon vulnerability. This is mind-blowing. This would have been mind-blowing for first century. Now, again, what's so fascinating about this is that the ancient world, as very similar to our world, is it's kind of had a mixed relationship with physicality. So ancient uh, Greek thought had sort of this dichotomy, or dualism, they would describe it, where there's a, there's a dualism between our, our soul and what we feel and how we define ourselves and how we think about ourselves and this physical flesh pot. And it's oftentimes been this mind, mindset of like the body, the flesh and blood, part of me is at conflict with the mind and thought and thinking part of me. And the big idea would be that one day salvation, like true hope of salvation is to separate the emotional, rational, thinking part of me, feeling part of me from this physical part of me. And that's where salvation is going to be found. That was kind of within ancient Platonic thought. So that even came in many ways to shape Christian thinking. So the idea that's like, man, one day, even within Christian evangelical circles, like one day as a human being, I'm going to die. I'm going to go off to be in some land called heaven, totally independent from this body. Please understand me. That is not a biblical perspective. That's Platonism. That's not Christianity. What Christianity is, is that God says, I love this body. I love humanity. I love physicality. I love this earth, the soil, the dirt. And we've talked about this many, many times in the past, that there's, there's a distinction that we would make between this physicality, this earth, and the operating system that kind of influences this, you know, humanity that we live in. And the operating system is, without question, in opposition to God. And that kind of often influences the flesh and human element that causes human beings to go far away from God and distort the image and the purposes and the ideas that God wants to create within this world. But again, the big Christian idea is that God actually loves this planet. In some ways, we live in a very similar type of mindset of the Platonism, although it's kind of a, a neo-form of Platonism, where if, if you've ever heard conversations like this, like, like, this is what I feel, my authentic self 
feels this way, but my body feels this way. There's, in other words, if, if, you, if you live in that state, you are in a perennial state of conflict, a battle, a war. How's it treating you? How does that feel? To consistently forever be in a state of conflict and battle. And yet the hope of the gospel is that God actually says, one of these days I'm going to take this body of flesh and bones that is, has, has issues, that's dis- disease, that's broken, that also plays into the soul and the, the, the intellect of humanity that's also infected by this disease. That literally we live within a world of chaos. And God says, one of these days I'm going to make order and bring peace in it. And how do we know this? Because this holy God, this invisible God, takes upon flesh and blood and becomes humanity. So what does that tell us immediately about God's relation to human beings and the culture in which we live in right now in terms of our world? It must tell us at least, at least, at minimum, that God actually cares about this world in which we live in. And we, we get this even further in the book of John, John chapter 3, verse 16. You guys are all familiar with it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we, we begin to see that, that God actually cares about this planet. He cares about all of it. He cares about you. He cares about how you feel and how you think and your body. And, and again, that, that can get distorted to where you make an idol out of your body, where everything gets focused on your body. Or everything gets focused even upon your emotion or your psyche or your soul. And then your body gets diminished or dismissed but the hope of the gospel is that actually god is going to bring order to all of these things and there will be a reintegration that rather than the body being at odds or at war with the psyche that all of these things will become integrated and god will breathe life into it it will take on a whole new life of itself so this is we begin to see the first fruits of this if you want to think of it in architectural terms, uh, we begin to see sort of the prototype or the schematic of what all things will begin to take shape of. And what is that? The word became flesh. And it goes on to say, one other last little word before we move on to the next passage. Uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst, amidst us or among us. Some of your translation might say, and dwelt among us. If you, I think it's like New Living Translation. Anybody have that? I think it says the word came and moved into the neighborhood. I love that, by the way. It might be the message or something like that. I love that, that image that, that God uh, basically lives far away. The image, you know, at least in the minds of, you know, most people, like God lives way out there. And one of these days, if we can work hard enough and do enough stuff and do enough sacrifices and be good and kind or whatever, then somehow God will maybe come and be amongst us. But the, the, the biblical image is that God comes and lives. He makes his home amidst human beings. Frail, broken, divisive, uh, distorting human beings just like you and I, agents of, of chaos, Right? And yet there's something about humanity and about you that God loves so much. He doesn't want to continue to see it just in a diseased state of chaos. But he wants to bring about new life and wholeness. We call that redemption, restoration. And what we begin to see is that this word comes in tabernacles among us. Now, the language, again, that John uses is very specific. He's an he's a incredible writer. 
And the word that he chooses here is really distinct. It's a word that actually takes you, if you were Jewish, especially right back to the book of Exodus. And if you recall that in the book of Exodus, um, God takes up residency amidst his people. You guys remember how that happens? It's, it's within what we would call the, the Ark of the Covenant, right? Not, not the Ark of uh, Raiders of the Ark, Lost Ark, though that's a great movie. Um, but the point that I would make is that inside this Ark was, this Ark would sit with inside of this tabernacle, which is kind of a, a tent. And, and that tent was basically the hot spot of God's presence. So if you were Jewish and you wanted to draw near to God, you'd go hang out near the, the, the hot spot of God's presence. And you'd bring your sacrifice because, again, you can't just come apart uh, without, apart from a sacrifice because, you know, we're, we're broken. We're agents of brokenness. We bring brokenness into our world around us. And so something's got to be done to, to compensate, to take away the guilt and the shame and the brokenness that oftentimes is there to bring repair. And so you go and you hang out. You'd be part of this, this tabernacle presence. And, and what John wants us to hear is that whoever this word is up in this point, this, this word becomes flesh and then tabernacles. That, that God, now this gets even more profound by the end of Jesus' life. You, you, if you're familiar with uh, the image when Jesus dies, it says, I think it's in the book of Matthew, that the, the veil of the temple is ripped from top to bottom. Again, by the way, if, if you're going to rip the, the, the I mean, if there's some sort of like terrorist act going on where the, the veil of the temple is going to be ripped, it'd be ripped from the bottom to the top. But here, we're told in New Testament detail that for whatever reason, this thing was ripped from top to bottom, which, which seems to imply an act of God, <laughs> Right? That somehow God must be ripping that veil that separated the holiest of holy place, the hot spot from all of humanity to say, my hot spot has gone global. My presence has been, been revealed and unleashed. And, and the big question then becomes, well, what happens when God's presence gets unleashed upon this planet Earth? Glad you asked. Healing comes. Healing becomes available. Uh, you, you have imagery. Uh, no doubt John is kind of winking at the ancient prophets, specifically Ezekiel, where he envisions uh, in the latter days uh, a, a new temple. And from this temple will come forth a river pouring out of this temple. And this temple in this image or this uh, prophetic word that Ezekiel imagines, uh, this river then goes forth into the into the into the desert. If you're familiar with like uh, Judean desert wilderness, so think of the Dead Sea. It's the lowest place on the earth, right? And it's just nothing. Literally, it's all dead. It's really, really is just dead. And Ezekiel envisions this river going into the Dead Sea and causing it to come back to life again, where it's green, it's beautiful. And we we go through a similar metamorphosis like that on the Central Coast here. You know, where I don't know, eight months out of the year, uh, it's it's brown. Some have corrected me. They're like, it's golden, right? It's brown, right? But the fact is, is that we might have like three or four months where it's like it's like Ireland or New Zealand. It's a, it's phenomenal. It's, it's green. It's vibrant. It's beautiful. It's alive. And the wildflowers come to life, and you're like, oh, what is this? I'll tell you what it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a regular, rhythmic cadence of resurrection after death. And, and God says, one of these days, I'm going to take this planet, which is a wasteland, a desert of death and brokenness and chaos, and bring forth newness and life. And how does this all begin? It begins by verse 14. And the word became flesh and tabernacled amidst us. Uh, verse 9 says, John describing, he says, and we have seen his glory as of the only son of the father full of grace and truth i think it's important just to think about this we've seen this so again john is writing as an eyewitness saying i was with him i saw this and again like i've mentioned before that john never actually uses his name in his 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 
biography about the life of Jesus, this book, this gospel account. If he ever does refer to himself, he refers to himself as the, as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is pretty awesome, by the way. But he goes on to just make this point that uh, we have seen his glory as of the only son. Again, this is another really important thing to just kind of pause and think about is the, the only son of the father. Um, the idea of sonship is really important. In fact, this is the very first time in the entire gospel account that the idea of sonship is introduced. Now, again, if you're Jewish, immediately this would be a hyperlink. It would, immediately your mind would go right back to the Old Testament and be like, oh, son? Jesus is the son? Wow. That'd be mind-blowing to you. Because the idea of sonship was always, always in ancient Jewish literature associated with one particular person. Specifically, at least in the normal history of the Jewish people. It was a king. And, and when the king was appointed, I think this is like, what, Psalm 7? I don't, I, don't, I don't think I have it in my notes. But I think it's like Psalm, no, Psalm 2, right. Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9, I do have it in my notes. Is that, is that describes a king being anointed, and the word anointed, you, you know, we hear anointed, like going to a Pentecostal, like someone like lays their hand on you, or like they hit you with their jacket, like you're anointed, like, nope, not at all. Uh, they would take this big, massive amount of like oil, they poured over your face, like poured over your beard, your head, and it would like drip all over you, so you would literally be this big, walking, like, like oily human, human being, but the idea is that you're anointed as a king. For what purposes? You are the representative of Yahweh. You represent Yahweh on this planet before his people. Now, if you're familiar with the history of Jewish people, um, there were some kind of good kings, and there were a lot of really bad kings, which means a lot of them distorted Yahweh's rule, which means they brought chaos into the nation, which means they brought just destruction and ruin. And so what he's saying is that when they would be appointed or anointed as king, they would have this name or this label of son being bestowed to them. So John's, again, borrowing language like a hyperlink from this Old Testament ideology and saying, this is Jesus. This is the word who's become flesh, that whoever it is, that he has come into this world and he has been bestowed upon him this radical claim of sonship, which means that Jesus is, is, has been given full authority by Yahweh to carry out some aim or purpose or agenda. Again, you might ask the question, like, what is that aim, purpose, and agenda? We'll get to that. But I, I promise you, it's beautiful. And it's really good. Uh, one other final thing to even note before we move on from this. But the, the idea of son is actually another name that was also given to Adam. So if you're familiar with the New Testament, or I should say the Old Testament imagery, uh, that Adam was actually called the son of God. And so Adam was bestowed with this role to represent God on planet Earth and to basically partner with Yahweh God to create a habitable space where heaven and earth overlap. And this was the image. But Adam, we know the story, kind of, kind of didn't do so well, right? He kind of took things down to a pathway that just led to chaos. It was like this Pandora's box of sin and rebellion and brokenness and distortion. So anytime you look at human beings, though they intrinsically would bear the image of God, uh, it's a distorted image of God. It's a broken mirror as opposed to a whole mirror. I have a mirror in my bathroom, and I was fixing it, and it broke. And so every time I, I look in it, which it's got this big crack through it. And I'm like, that's, that's, that's an accurate depiction of me. Like, it's a broken human being looking at another broken human being. And the fact of the matter is, is that's, that's who we are. And yet, what John wants us to know about this word, that he is the direct replacement. He's the new Adam of a brand new humanity. And so again, at this point right now, we should be thinking and asking the question, like, 
along the, with the audience of John's readers, like, what does this word who becomes flesh, who takes upon himself this, like, this radical identity of sonship, what does he do? What does he accomplish? What's his agenda on this planet? And again, this word gets really good. And it's going to go on, and as we read through this, I'm going to just kind of highlight uh, three different areas where John's going to point out very, uh, various forms of testimony. In other words, um, John's writing, and this is what's commonly known just in his first uh, handful of passages, is called the prologue. So whatever John is doing is he's basically setting up the entire book based upon these first uh, few verses. So uh, it's like you, you really got to pay attention to what's happening here right now. Otherwise, once you get in the book, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. It's kind of like certain movies, which are more coming to my mind right now, where it's like you got to pay attention the first like 10 minutes, right? And if you don't pay attention the first 10 minutes of the movie, I think the word, or the, the movie Up, right? It's kind of like that, where you got to, you have to pay attention to the very first few minutes of what's going on. Otherwise, you get like 20 minutes into it. If you fall asleep during the first 10 minutes of it and you wake up, then you're like, I have no idea what's going on in this movie. It doesn't make any sense to me. You have to pay attention. And that's what John's saying is that this whole writing, this whole letter is built upon testimony. He wants to call uh, eyewitnesses to the stand to say, this is the testimony of what these key witnesses have to declare about Jesus. And, and again, like I mentioned last week, we already know where John is going with this. John does have an agenda. His agenda is, is that as you listen to the eyewitness testimony of these that he's going to call to the stand, not in a legal sense, of course, but more of just a, you know, hey, here's, here's what we've observed. Here's what we've seen. Here's what we know. He's going he's gonna to do so in a manner that will invite you to let it reshape your life. To let this story not just kind of be something that you hear and you're like, oh, that's good. Like you give mental assent to it, a little hat tip. You're a little bit like, that's pretty awesome. Like, no, his whole point is like invite this Lord to be the Lord over your life in every aspect. Let his ways, let his agenda become your agenda. Let his ways become your ways. Let his uh, morality, his role, his idea, his identity, let all of that become yours. John's not going to let us off the hook. To just simply be comfortable reading the story of the Gospel of John and be like, man, isn't this just an amazingly cool story? His whole point is that it would bring about radical life transformation so that we become disciples and followers of this Jesus. That we begin to take upon those various elements of new life in those areas of death and brokenness throughout our lives. So here's the various testimonies. So he's going to call attention to John's testimony. So verse 15, he makes uh, clear that John bore witness about him and he cried out. He was uh, whom I said he comes uh, after me and he ranks before me because... He was before me. So uh, we're going to catch more of John's testimony next week as he's going to kind of point this out as well. But I just want to draw like quick attention to this because it's part of the passage that we're going to read. And so he wants us to understand like, like John knew who Jesus was. He calls attention to Jesus. Again, like I said, we'll look at that next week. Secondly, he points attention to the, the Torah. Uh, in most of your translation, verse 17, it says, The law came through Moses, but through Jesus came uh, grace and, and truth. Um, the word law... In, Fortunately, is, I think it's not a great translation. Because for most of us in modern day 21st century, when we hear the word law, we immediately go to like an actual like, like, like law book, like rule book, or like various laws. That's not what John has in mind. John's Jewish. And so for John, when he thinks about law, he thinks of Torah. Torah uh, is, is basically the story of God that we would maybe call the Old Testament, more specifically what we would call the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, or the first five books of the, of the Bible. And what was the aim of the Torah, or the Pentateuch? It was to point the people of Israel to this awareness of who God is, who Yahweh is. 
It was a testimony. It brought the people of Israel into the life of God. It had limitations, of course. The, the, the whole New Testament kind of points this out. It had limitations. It was, it was never intended to be the end all. Uh, it has a purpose, and the purpose of this law is to bring us up to a certain point, and then when that other thing that that law points to, which is, in this case, we all know Jesus, then Jesus takes upon himself kingship, lordship, ultimate means to define uh, what God looks like and so on. So the Torah is, is essential, and he's drawing to the Torah, saying the Torah actually points to who Jesus is, and then lastly, he points out the Father's testimony. Now, this is ultimately, uh, just so that you know, is what, can it, is, is what is going to get Jesus killed. Jesus is going to draw upon this a little bit later in the book. And he said, my father bears me witness. And they're like, wait, what? Your father? Who's your father? And this gets everybody really angry. Because in their mind, they think, you're just a human being. We know where you grew up. We know your mom. We know she had you and you weren't, there was no father in the picture. We know the weird circumstances that surrounded your birth. We know where you grew up. We know your brothers. There's no way that you can be this like vast prophetic-like figure that you seem to be attributing to yourself. And, and we're going to put you to death for that. And that's what ends up happening. But uh, verse 18 says, no one has seen God. The only God who is of the Father's side, uh, he has made him known. So again, there's some ambiguity as to is the Father the one making the Son known or is the Son making the Father known? And I think the answer is, Yes. <laughs> yes. Both. And here's the question I think should be asked is, what are they all declaring? So Jesus shows up. We know he's the son. We know he's the word that was with God in the beginning. That was creating all things alongside God. And that is God. And that ultimately became manifest, took upon flesh and bone, and lived among us as human beings. Um, but then the big question is, what does that mean? What does it mean for Yahweh to enter into his story? What type of, a, what type of a, an agency does he employ? How does he treat other people? Is he angry? Is he frustrated? Is he just disappointed with everybody? Because everybody is basically taking their own little Sharpie marker and drawn uh, all forms of graffiti over his goodness. Is he just disappointed with every human being? And what we begin to learn from Jesus is something far more beautiful. Is that if Jesus is indeed, as John's telling us, again, you, you can choose to believe John's witness or you can disregard John's witness. But this is not my opinion. This is John's witness. John seems to be telling us that whoever this word is that became flesh, he is the perfect representation of who Yahweh is. So some of you right now need to pause. There may need to be some reframing going on in your life right now. Because for some of you, you're still stuck on this narrative that God is gravely disappointed in you. He may even be out to destroy you. His aim and agenda in your life is to just crash wave upon wave of deconstructing destruction over your life over and over and over again just to keep your soul in a constant state of upheaval. And if this is the image that you have of God, it needs updating. It's a false God. And I would even add, that false God will continue to keep you apart from God. It will keep you running from God. It will keep you running from what God has for you. And it will keep you in a continual state of lifelessness, of death, and constant ruin. 
We're in the heart of the Father. Jesus is going to tell us over and over again. There's actually one where he says, I love you. I see you over there in the margins. You're not forgotten. Yeah, you've been passed over at work by this you know, promotion. Yeah, others don't see you. Yeah, you're trying really hard to get likes on your videos that you're posting on TikTok. And yeah, you're doing everything that you can to try to become seen and known and recognized. And yeah, you as a girl might be giving your body away for favors to another guy, hoping at some point they might actually accept you. And yet it continues to bring a cycle of guilt, shame, regret over and over. And yet the father comes back over and over and over again and says, I love you. I see you. I'm with you. I'm for you. I invite you into the story that I'm, I'm crafting. But then there comes a question of like, but can I trust him? Can I really, 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 really trust him? And the question is, can you, can you trust the Jesus that we see in the story of John? Because if you look at the life of Jesus and you're like, oh my gosh, he seems so kind to women that are shady or people that are kind of in the margins or people that should not be shown any degree of dignity or humanity or worth, a guy like Zacchaeus or whoever. Uh, like, how does Jesus treat these people? That's exactly how he will treat you. And some of you already might be like, well, that seems too good to be true. I promise you, it is not. This is the image. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we are invited to let shape the sum total of who we are as human beings. And so, again, back to the question. What, what are all of these things declaring to us? Well, Jesus, apparently, is what he's going to describe. And by implication, Yahweh, because Jesus is the word who is with God, who was God, who created the world with God, and later on is God. And then we see him becoming human being in the flesh. That Jesus, by implication, Yahweh himself, number one, radiates with glory. The word glory is one of those like weirdly misunderstood words. Uh, the word glory can take upon an entire life of its own. Think of glory as, as the weightiness of someone's. Have you been around people? That, uh, I mean, think of it. I think the closest thing we would have to, to glory is like a celebrity who, when you're in their presence, there's this sense of like, oh my gosh, awe and respect and like amazing. It's like, oh my gosh, do you, I, I'm in the presence of sheer greatness. Now, that's kind of an odd analogy because a lot of times people that are celebrities or maybe that might take upon that, that, that concept of being a celebrity are, are shallow people sometimes. I'm not making judgments, but you know, you get the idea that sometimes that can happen. So in, in reality, they're not really filled with weightiness, but there's a perception that there's a weightiness about them. Have you been around someone where there's just that sense of like, I'm in the presence of something absolutely great? One of the greatest inanimate ways in which you can think of this. If you've ever been to, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, where's that? I'm totally blanking on it. Anyways, sitting at the base of El Capitan. Where's that? At? Why am I blanking on what's that called? It's, yes, Yosemite. I was thinking Tahoe, and I'm like, I know it's not Tahoe. <laughs> dumb Brian. Dumb Brian. It's, okay, Yosemite. There we go. I got issues I got to work through. But the point that I would make is, have you ever like sat at the base of that? You look up and it's like breathtaking. You're not doom scrolling on your Instagram account in that moment. You're not stressing and worrying about our bills going to get paid in that moment. You're not even thinking about, will someone love me in that moment? In that moment, you are just captivated by the sheer awe and grandeur of this inanimate object right in front of you. It's 
mind bending. And this is the idea. This, this becomes close to the idea of glory, that whoever Jesus is, that he radiates with glory. When you're in the presence of this Jesus, it's breathtaking. Some have even described it as shocking, shocking beauty. There's a lot of things that are not shocking in our world today that are not beautiful. There's a lot of ugliness. When was the last time you've been in the presence of shocking beauty where his just absolutely ravished your soul, took your breath away? This is the image that Jesus is saying, that he radiates glory. Then next it goes on to say he's full of grace and truth, full of grace. Uh, and it's also grace upon grace. And I love this image right here because it's not just grace plus grace. It's grace multiplied by grace. So whatever it is that Jesus has, it's multiplied. In it, there is no lack whatsoever of the grace that Jesus has for us. So what is grace? Grace is this favor. And I would even argue in a lot of ways, it's, it's what you and I really, really, truly want. We don't want to just be recognized. I think, I think there's, a, there's a weird misnomer in our culture today where it's just like, we just want likes, we just want to be seen, we just want to be known, we just want to become popular, we just want to become influencers, we just want to go viral, we just want that. Great, great, you get that, now what? Now what? I've known people that have been extremely influential in that level. And it's really, honestly, it's never enough. Because if you do get it, now you've got to keep it up to sustain it, to keep it going, and that at some point becomes exhausted. You know what we really want? We really just truly have to the end of the day, we want to know that in spite of who we are, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our exhaustion, we have been accepted and seen and loved. That's grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't get it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't merit it. You didn't do something to somehow get the hat tipped by God. You have it because God is filled with grace. I mean, imagine being in the presence of someone. I mean, it's, it's, I remember like back in the time when when my wife Sharon and I were dating. It's like, there's that weird, awkward thing where you're like, you're acting like on your best behavior, right? And then you get married and you're just like, let it all go to the wayside. You're like, she knows things about me. And just, that's just like, I, I don't care, whatever. It's all good. But I, I, that's grace. She loves me in spite of anything about me, how broken I am. The, I don't even go down the path, but you get the idea. All of these frail, false, bad things about me, she is deeply devoted to me, and I'm deeply devoted to her. Is it something I did? No, most of the time, the fact, most of the things I do are actually just frustrating, hurtful, and have to be apologized for and dealt with and whatnot, but she still is deeply committed to me. That's grace. It's like what a mom has for a child. What did that child do to you to earn your unlimited, constant, unwavering devotion to that child? Nothing. It just creates messes for you. Diapers and just soiled and just cries. And yeah, I mean, they're beautiful. They're cute. Yes, I get it. And I'm going to be a grandpa. I told you guys that. It's pretty awesome. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's like there, that's an image of grace. Like there's nothing that was earned or merited in that. But you show this incredible. That's what God says. That's for you. Let me just pause real quick. What, would, what shape would your life take right now if you actually believe that? What type of a person would you be? Who would you become? How would you think about other people in your life? People that annoy you, people that frustrate you, people that let you down. How would you think about them? If you were able to fully embrace this reality that Jesus comes in the flesh and shows grace upon grace. And then lastly, it says that he's also full of truth. 
Full truth. I can. I think we'd all agree. We live in a world right now where no one really knows what's true. Like honestly, like I, I think of anything the past few years, like I had no idea what's true. I don't know if this doctor's true or if that doctor's true or if this you know news media cycle is true or this social media conglomerates true. I, I don't. I don't really know what truth is or where truth is. I do know there's a lot of propaganda, which is kind of like the distortions of truth. There might have a little bit of truth here, a little bit of truth there, with a little bit of like lies you know sewn in. I don't really know what's truth. But over and over and over again, John's going to bring us back to Jesus and say, you want to know what truth is? Truth is not just simply a corollary of, of idea or abstract ideas and concepts all sewn together to kind of create some sort. Of, like that kind of leads to a form of fundamentalism. But truth is going to be embodied. And truth is actually a person. So what does it mean to actually be in relation with truth itself? Again, what type of a person would it make you? Have you ever met people that have a lot of truths or facts or data and they're just they're horrible to be around. That's the guy, like, at Thanksgiving, you're like, please just be quiet. Like, stop talking. We want to enjoy a meal. And all you're doing is you're just talking about this, like, podcast that you listen to. Now you're, like, you're this expert. Like, that, that's not helpful. And the point that I would make is that being in the presence of someone like Jesus, who is truth, and says, I know everything there is to be known about you, and yet grace and truth and glory are what I've come to reveal. So lastly, is like, what, what does Jesus, and again, by implication, Yahweh, come to do? What do they come to do? And this is, this is where John's saying, buckle up. This is where the story gets really good. And this is like your invitation is like, hold on, strap yourself in, and get ready for the ride of your life. Because you're going to learn some things about Jesus, and by implication, Yahweh, that should shock you out of disbelief, out of cynicism, out of anger, out of frustration, out of chaos, and into new life. C.S. Lewis would say this, it costs God nothing, so far as we know, to create nice things, but to convert rebellious wills costs him crucifixion. How, do, how does God get there? He enters into the story. And in closing, I was listening to a uh, teaching this past week by a uh, uh, famous pastor, teacher, you know, writer named uh, Tim Keller. Some of you guys know who he is. And he tells this story uh, about uh, the author, Dorothy Sayers, if you're familiar with her. She's written all sorts of, like, crime novels and whatnot, super well-known during the tw- 1920s. And um, she had this famous uh, uh, series of uh, crime novels that she had written about a guy by the name of Lord Peter Whimsey. And if you're familiar with those, he was, like, super aristocratic, very well-known, very wealthy, kind of kind of a playboy type of a dude that was, was a mess, like a white, hot mess. Um, kind of chaotic, out of control in his life, and a very unhappy, very broken bachelor. And then a woman shows up in his novels, a gal by the name of Harriet Zane, um, and she's actually a female mystery writer. Um, she was one of the very first women as a character in the story to actually have graduated from Oxford University. And uh, what ends up happening throughout these novels is that Harriet and Peter actually fall in love, and then later they end up um, marrying one another. And her lo- her love for... Sir Peter Whimsey begins to heal his broken soul and transform him into a whole brand new person. And what's really fascinating about this is that at some point you step back and you realize, like, wait, Dorothy Sayers wrote, this is her world. She created Lord Peter Whimsey. Like, the whole world of Lord Peter Whimsey, she is the creator of that entire world. All the stuff that Sir Peter Whimsey uh, did and lived and lacked and failed in, all of this was her creation. And yet he was part of this broken reality that she then says, she fell in love with the character. And you know what she does? 
she puts herself into the story. And everyone knows that she actually is Harriet Vane in her story. She falls in love with him. And it's this that kind of, as she puts herself into the story, she falls in love with him, this chief character. And by writing herself in the story, she does so so that she can then heal him. This is the gospel. I mean, if you, if you think about that for just an instant, you're like, this is not, that's beautiful. Like, that's pretty amazing. Or it's extremely egotistical. I mean, either way, you can, you can look at that. But let's just focus on the beauty part. It's absolutely beautiful. She writes herself into her own world and says, I'm going to bring healing to this chaotic human being that's got incredible qualities, but also at the same time is deeply flawed and broken. And I'm going to do so by falling in love with him and shaping, reshaping his life to become something brand new something that it wasn't before, something that's alive. This is exactly what John writes when he says, and the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. At the end of the day, Christianity is not about a bunch of laws and rules for you to follow. It's not a political position. It's not a bunch of truths and ideas to somehow craft and figure out and learn so that now you can become very competitive and argumentative to everybody that disbelieves with you. It's about Jesus stepping into our world and making dead people alive. I'm going to read this poem. I don't even know why, but it's, just, it's, it's, it's been hitting me since I first read it, and I'll read it to you, and hopefully I'll stay calm. T.K. Chesterton, Chesterton wrote this. He wrote, The sages have a hundred maps to give. And it's just, that struck me because I'm like, we live in that world right now. The sages, we call them influencers, by the way. The influencers have a thousand maps to give. Here you go, follow this path, live this life, do this thing, follow this recipe, follow this you know, agenda to uh, attain self-awareness. And in, you, and in doing so, you will come to life. And he says, the sages have a hundred maps to give that trace their crawling cosmos like a tree. They rattle reason out through many a sieve that stores the sand and lets the gold go free. And all these things are less than dust to me because my name is Lazarus and I, and I live. That's the gospel. Like we live in a world that's constantly giving us these maps saying follow this map, it will lead you to life. Tap into your inner self, live according to that inner urge and desire, those emotions, those feelings, those, those desires. Follow them. Trust your heart. It will lead you to a path of life. And I, I promise you, please listen to me. I promise you it will not. And if it does, it's only temporary until it doesn't anymore. And then what? You got to craft some new map, some new pathway, some new agenda. And then when that fails, then what? Just repeat over and over. Repeat again and again. And again, exhausting pathways until there are no other pathways to exhaust and we just expire and life's over. Or we get so filled with exhaustion and despair, we just end our life. That's the world we live in, guys. That's the path that the sages tell us follow. John is giving us an alternative, saying in him is grace, truth, beauty. My hope is John's hope is that in following the story of Jesus we like Lazarus come to life.
and back. How about we all stand? I'm going to pray over us. Gunther will come forth and give us a quick word of encouragement, but I want to pray over us. So Jesus, right now, we submit our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, our everything to you. Jesus, you are king. And we just, we, we're, not, we're, not, we're not making any claim that's new. We're just reaffirming and we're aligning our voice with the consistent voice that goes back 2,000 years. We're, that's all we're doing. And this, this statement is just the same statement that's being shouted from small churches throughout South Africa, South America, China, North Korea, with the churches underground. It's the same message that's being proclaimed in old halls throughout Europe that Jesus is Lord. So Jesus, come make us new. Come make us alive. Take those stories, God, that we've uh, entrusted ourselves to that have influenced us, have just taken us down these paths of despair and exhaustion and ruin. And even though they might have afforded us a momentary slot of, of joy and happiness and peace and a sense of community, but at some point, God, some of us, uh, we, we're past that. We're, we're in those places of just despair. So cause us, like Lazarus, to come to life. It's all that you have. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name.